This is a Future Cannabis Project podcast. Welcome to Hota Herbs Grow and Tell. So without further ado, Hota Herbs Grow and Tell. And um, Grow and Tell is uh, a uh, gathering that I started in uh, Massachusetts in the Worcester area. And it was a uh, grow club, basically. It was a monthly get-together here in Massachusetts where uh, all of us newly found or newly legal growers found each other and we had a, a fantastic smoking lounge a cannabis consumption lounge here in Massachusetts called the summit lounge uh, which is right in the middle of Worcester and it's a fantastic bring your own cannabis place it's a private club uh, you can go in there and you can smoke and hang out with all your friends and all that so I was as a you know as a person who had been growing or uh, reading about growing or not even cultivating cannabis but cultivating other types of plants and growing all sorts of types of herbs and things that I was using in my cooking. Um, but getting back into cannabis growing again, I wanted to hang out with other growers and, and I wanted to talk about uh, what, you know, what they were doing and, and how they were doing it and, you know, get everybody to get the idea was to get a bunch of us together. Everybody bring your jars. We're going to go to the Summit Lounge. We're going to get together. We're going to sniff each other's jars. We're going to smoke each other's weed. We're going to talk about how we grew it, what we put into it, what the genetics were, and just start to create this fantastic community. And uh, it was uh, it, it took off right away. I had, I think, uh, 25 people at the first uh, meeting, and we had a couple of uh, we had a couple of uh, events where we just completely packed the house and we hit the limit on the Summit Lounge. And I think we were actually over the fire limit <laughs> a couple of times, about 70, uh, 65, 70 people in there, and uh, just really, really tremendous. Um, once uh, we got going, I had a f- few companies jump in as sponsors uh, who were uh, giving away free goodies every month too so you could come and get a couple bo- couple small jars of fish shit um, or you could get some worm castings or um, all the different types of uh, companies that uh, were rolling through I had a couple seed companies do launches there um, my friend at well grown seeds Darren came by and did his his actual company launch at one of my events and so it was fantastic it was just a great great time. Um, unfortunately, though, uh, after about 16 uh, grow and tells, uh, we ran into COVID and uh, we had to stop getting together. The Summit Lounge closed down and we kind of as a community, you know, split up. Uh, so um, it's uh, it was a group I missed and it was, uh, it was an event I missed hosting. I uh, had a lot of fun hosting those events and getting us all together. And, you know, we did a lot of good as well. We raised money for veterans and and helped uh, raise awareness around veterans' issues and and, uh, were able to support 
and sponsor uh, five veterans to get full grow kits and, and bring them through a full grow class from seed to harvest and teach them how to grow and all that stuff. So it really was fantastic. And I missed it. I missed having this space and I missed having my group. So uh, I'm since moved and I'm not necessarily in the Worcester area anymore. So having a grow and tell in person is not really convenient. So uh, when Peter reached out to me uh, and, and uh, asked if I'd be interested in, in doing a show on a future cannabis project on Clubhouse, I was totally into it. It sounded like a fantastic idea. And it was time to relaunch Hota Herbs Grow and Tell. So here we are at the Hota Herbs Grow and Tell. And um, I would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about what we're growing. So um, just to just to kick off real quickly, I have in my flowering tent, for those that follow me on Instagram, uh, you can check out pictures of my plants all the time. I have um, a New England rock candy, uh, two phenos of this uh, fantastic New England rock candy, which comes from uh, predic predicative breeding here in Massachusetts. So it's a local buddy of mine, a local friend, uh, does some great stuff here in, in New England. And he's just got some amazing uh, cultivars that he really spends just a ton of time on the breeding process, really focused on producing high-quality, stable Genetics and um, what's amazing about the two the, these two phenos is that um, they they're like uh, genetically bushy. Uh, they can't they don't grow tall. Uh, these plants won't stretch. Um, they got to a certain height and they're like, nope, we're just going to keep getting wider. And um, so really really great. I mean, they stayed at about four feet high, which is fantastic for indoors. And um, we're I got one plant that's in three weeks, third week of flowering. The other one's in the second week of flowering, and that one in the third week's already starting to build up a little frost and has some nice stacking. The other plant I have in my tent, my flowering tent right now, is a um, it is a Dr. Lime F2, which comes from 555 Genetics, um, who is uh, also another really, really uh, fantastic uh, breeder, uh, really, really solid um, credentials in the community and good, solid following, and has done some really, really nice work. And I'm really looking forward to this first plant that I've grown from him and from, pred from Predicative Breeding. So uh, really, really psyched to get those going. In my tent, uh, my veg tent, though, I also have uh, some Pie of the Tiger from Green Team Genetics, who's my uh, my best, one of my best buddies in, in, in Worcester, uh, Tom from Green Team Genetics. Really, really fantastic stuff. Uh, all of his uh, Pie 95 um, uh, and, and the lines that he cut off of that are just quite amazing, quite amazing. Um, and then um, I also have a grape popsicle from Terp Fiend. Uh, Terp Fiend is out of kind of the New York, New Jersey area, I believe. Um, we, he focuses on terpenes as his breeding uh, as his breeding philosophy. That's what he's always focused on is trying to get the best, uh, most intense terpene flavors out of stuff. Um, and that's what he follows and focuses on. So really good stuff. Uh, what do you got growing, Nick? I know you probably have a ton of different stuff going, but if you want to give us a couple. 
Yeah, so right now, my uh, unfortunately, my closet is empty, so to speak. But, um, you know, for the past couple of years, I'd like to think that I have been growing by extension because I've had this opportunity to, you know, put together a, a nutrient line that kind of speaks to some of the stuff, um, flavonoid chemistry in particular. So I'm actually just scrolling around on your Instagram right now, and I'm looking at the Dr. Lime, and that one has some purple coming through it already. So. And you can definitely see the purple in the water leaves behind it. So it's going to be good context for us to talk about the uh, the purple pigments and the flavonoids and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Peter, do you got anything growing on over there you want to talk about? I'm growing a bunch of AB's uh, Australian bastard cannabis and kind of just hunting around with that. And then... Uh, a bunch of stuff in the kind of uh, cat pissy family. Um, that's kind of what's going on right now specifically. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I haven't decided quite yet what I'm going to pop. We've got a couple days till the full moon here, and I'm going to go ahead and pop a couple more seeds. So uh, i got to try to figure out what to keep, what to pop. And I've got those uh, Todd McCormick um, NL5 F2s that I just got. So it may be hard for me to not pop a couple of those, although I have these other seven or eight items that I really want to get down in the, in the, in the water and get them going. So... Uh, good stuff. Good stuff. All right. So that is, um, that's kind of the grow and tell intro. Um, normally we would basically spend the first hour just hanging out, talking, as I mentioned, sniffing each other's jars, smoking each other's weed. Um, and then we would do probably about a half an hour presentation, um, talk with whoever our sponsored or featured person was for the evening. And then we would just, you know, kind of break up and do a raffle and, and, and um, again, smoke each other's weed and sniff each other's jars and um, have, have a fantastic evening. So we will definitely bring a whole bunch of people up on stage, but I want to make sure that we kick off the discussion tonight and get a little time in here before we bring some folks up. And I definitely had a few folks who contacted me earlier. I want to bring up on stage like Matt down below uh, who, who uh, hit me up earlier, who definitely had some, uh, was really, really into this topic. And I'll definitely bring up some of these other folks to uh, help contribute as well in just a little bit. Uh, but to kick it off, flavonoids. Um, so we all talk about cannabinoids all the time. Uh, you know, I think this plant in general um, is being, uh, you know, has been for a long time persecuted because of one small molecule, and it's that THC molecule, which is just one of the many cannabinoids. Um, but that is, cannabinoids are just one of the components. We also have terpenes. We all talk about terpenes all the time with these flavor, you know, how these things smell. What are those aromas coming off of those plants? Um, this smells like this or it smells like that. Peter was talking about those cat pissy smells and um i love the uh, i love grapes and cherries and oranges and things like that um i also like some gas in there occasionally too um but i tend to be uh you know it's one of the things that i actually really look for is that third component which is the taste the flavor the flavonoids and um when I think about the best cannabis I've ever smoked, it usually is around that 
flavor and that lasting effect of those flavors in my mouth. Um, you know, like a really good sour diesel back in the day would like, you'd feel it and taste it in your gums. It was like, you, you know, like it was almost like a part of your mouth for a while. And when you smoke a really, really good, full, uh, well-grown plant um, that's been properly cured and treated, um, you get all of those flavors and that f you feel that, you taste that, uh, f that flavor profile from the beginning of the joint to the end of the joint. Um, you, you can taste it in your mouth, you can smell it on your clothes. Um, flavonoids though are all around us and because Nick wanted to get us into this topic and he's going to go really deep on the science, I figured I could go ahead and, and do the, the basic Google on the flavonoids to get us introduced to what flavonoids are, uh, if, uh, unless there's something you wanted to add to the conversation before I do that, Nick? No, I mean, I, I think you're good to go however you want to do it. Perfect. All right. So um, flavonoids, right? Flavonoids, what are flavonoids, right? So flavonoids are, uh, they're phyto, are, are a phytonutrient. Um, they are um, parts of a lot of the foods we eat, and they're also a large portion of the health benefits. Uh, what scientists believe that a lot of the benefits, although they've been having problems proving this out in some cases, a lot of the health benefits that we get from eating plant-based foods comes actually from the flavonoids themselves. So um, we get some of the most dense foods with flavonoids or berries. Um, blackberries particularly have include all six types of flavonoids, and I don't know if we want to go down that part of the rabbit hole because there's multiple types of flavonoids even, which was something interesting to learn. Um, but blueberries and cherries and raspberries have flavonoids. Uh, strawberries even have uh, moderate amounts of anthocyanidins. Um, red cabbage, uh, onions, kale, parsley, uh, grapes, uh, specifically red wine, uh, tea, uh, that's one of Nick's favorite. We were talking about brewing. Uh, he was talking all about tea cultivars on our back channel chat the other day, uh, yesterday and the day before. So absolutely, there's uh, tons of flavonoids and teas, dark chocolate, citrus fruit, uh, even soybeans uh, have good amounts of flavonoids. And um, eating more foods packed with flavonoids may help lower your systolic blood pressure. Uh, that's the top number on that blood pressure number, and um, that reflects the pressure blood exerts against your artery artery walls when the heart beats, especially uh, when you also have greater diversity of bacteria in your gut. Uh, those um, you get more benefits from the eating those foods that are packed with flavonoids. Uh, flavonoids uh, flavonoids are the yellow plant pigments seen in most notably lemons oranges, grapefruits. The name itself stems from flavus, uh, which is Latin for yellow, which is um, 
again, something I had no idea. So the Google machine was kind to me today. Uh, flavonoids in flowers and fruits provide visual cues for animals, pollinators, and seed dispersers to locate their targets. So not only uh, do uh, they provide flavor, they also uh, those colors also help enhance uh, pollination, which is really cool stuff. Um, and phytonutrients like flavonoids have beneficial anti-inflammatory effects. Uh, they protect your cells from oxidative damage can, that can lead to disease. Uh, these dietary antioxidants can prevent the development of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, cognitive, cognitive, uh, cognitive diseases like Alzheimer and dementia even. Um, and, uh, you know, we spend a ton of time talking about that cannabis is a medical product. Cannabis is also very high in flavonoids. Um, and uh, I think this is a fantastic point to turn it over to my friend Nick to talk a bit about flavonoids. I know, uh, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about their, their, uh, the amount of weight and carbon and how much of a percentage of that overall carbon number the cannabis plant has. So why don't you go ahead and jump on in here? All right. Thank you, Jason. Um, yeah, and as you uh, <clears throat> hinted out there, you know, the, these, these compounds they're kind of a little bit mysterious because at least with most people, you can hand them some cannabis and, and have them understand that, you know, so certain aromas uh, are, are coming from the terpenes that are produced. And uh, similarly, certain effects of cannabis come from the cannabinoids they produce, but it's a little bit harder for us to maybe put our finger on what exactly um, these flavonoids are and how they work in plants. So, which is interesting from my perspective, because in some cases, the total, uh, amount of carbon that plants sink into that pathway can represent something like 20% of the overall carbon metabolized by the plant. So it's not a small amount here and there. Um, you know, initially it was thought that these compounds were quote unquote secondary metabolites because they weren't really understood to have effects on primary metabolism in plants. But now it's a little bit better understood that these compounds do in fact have uh, beneficial properties for primary growth. And um, some of the compounds that, you know, make up these, like like you were saying, Jason, it's the pigments within the flowers. So if you're growing some uh, cannabis and the, and, and the flower comes out purple, that purple color is a result of a particular type of flavonoid called an anthocyanin. Um, the anthocyanins themselves, interestingly enough, like you were saying, Jason, there's this other one called anthocyanidin. And that is the, like, think about these purple pigments as almost like sandwiches, right? So you've got something in the middle. In this case, it's the actual phenolic compound, the thing that's not soluble in water. And then sandwiched around it, you've got something that makes it soluble in water because this is how plants effectively solve this question of how do we transport this compound that's not soluble in water? How do we transport it through a water stream? And the answer to that is, well, just weld some sugars onto it, staple it here and staple it there. And all of a sudden it becomes soluble in water. It can get pulled around from cell to cell in the stream. So, you know, the, when we're looking at anthocyanins, we, we also have to kind of understand that there's a little bit of a spectrum to what these compounds are. It's not like there's this one distinct um, thing that they are. I mean, it can be broken down like that. You can reduce it to the two uh, aromatic rings, the two six carbon rings plus that three carbon uh, center molecule. That makes up all of these compounds. But if you want to look at their structure and function, you have to look at it from a slightly different perspective. You know, some of these anthocyanins have this unique property of soaking up 
excess light energy from the sun. And so if your plants, you know, become stressed out because of the light intensity, they may end up producing flavonoids in response to that. Uh, alternatively, you could have some kind of disease pressure and the plants produce these compounds in response to that disease pressure as well. So there's all kinds of different reasons that a plant would produce it. Um, I think one of the more um, recently fascinating ones for people has been, you know, particularly with cannabis is how do these molecules um, help form relationships in the rhizosphere? Because flavonoid chemistry is kind of unique in the sense that um, how flavonoids accumulate is kind of, it depends on which cell you're talking about. And even once you're inside of the cell, is it on the cell wall? Is it in the nucleus? Like where, where exactly are these flavonoids going and what do they do? And certainly if you could take like a little snapshot of a plant cell and have this color-coded uh, lens that you could just, you know, use to look at just the flavonoids, you would find that they do accumulate in certain compartments of the cells where they have some benefits to do, you know, something associated with stress relief, for example. You know, if there's too much oxidative stress going into one pathway, the plant will produce an antioxidant. And, you know, in this case, it's the phenolic compounds. They have this ring-like structure that can take in that excess energy and disperse it across its chemical bonds. So it's like a physical heat sink, an oxidative heat sink that would otherwise do damage to the plant. Well, now it's running a little bit cooler. So, um, you know, that being said, the roots are a very interesting spot, uh, a place to look at the rhizosphere in particular. Uh, to better understand how plants produce these types of compounds to mediate the relationships that they have in the soil. So is that something that uh, you wanted to get into this evening, Jason? Was that specific prong of the conversation? I'm ready to go down whatever angle on the rabbit hole you're ready to dive down, my friend. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, there, again, there's, there's tie-ins. There's and I love this, right? I mean, we have, in many cases, there's direct tie-ins between plant health and our own health. Um, and understanding these compounds better and what they do in reaction in the human body is important for us in the cannabis industry. Um, and understanding that these are a very volatile group that tend to also be highly impacted by heat. Um, one of the things that I read when I was reading was um, you can tell the impact on uh, that heat is having on flavonoids uh, based on the color. Um, so when you're, um, you know, when you're cooking something, uh, so for example, onions stored at room temperature can lose up to a third of their flavonoids in just two weeks. Um, and according to world's healthiest foods, up to 80% of some flavonoids can be lost in the cooking process. A good way to tell if your food is losing nutrients is by its color. Um, if it's normally a vivid color, it starts to fade when being boiled or cooked, your food is losing its phytonutrients. So um, I, I, it's another reason why I uh, believe that some consumption of raw cannabis is probably also has some tremendous health benefits from that aspect that we're missing when we consume it uh, in a decarboxylated format. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I would second that. And if you want to look, like tea is a really good example because here's a plant that's been processed for thousands of years now and people have managed to find a way to take it, pluck it, the leaves off of the plant and then turn it into white tea, green tea, 
oolong tea, black tea. Um, there's even post-fermented teas like pu'er. Um, I'm a big fan of Phoenix Mountain oolongs. I think that they're low in caffeine, but man, are they high in the biostimulatory quality in a property. So, you know, part of the, the way that the, the flavonoids change as a result of oxidation can be characterized, again, in the same way that white tea is turned into a variety of different teas because you can pluck it off of the plant and process it in a very simple way and it retains that color the rate of oxidation is fairly low so when you drink it you get like a very fresh cup of tea whereas if you um, oxidize the tea leaf just like an apple browns if you allow enzymatic oxidation to occur of the catechins these are the specific flavonoids in tea um, you do get a color change but you know, you, you kind of condense and compress these molecules. Now we're talking about uh, theorubigans as opposed to theoflavonoids, you know, the ones produced by tea. So there is this speciation that occurs over time as this reaction also unfolds within the molecular structure of these compounds. So they don't, you know, you may change some of the health benefits, I guess you could say, like black tea has a different effect than green or white tea does. Um, and if you drink a, an oolong tea, you may also find that it has a different effect um, overall on your body. So, and it's not that you've gained or lost anything, it's that the thing that you were working with has simply transformed over a period of time. Um, and like I said, with tea processing, it's a very, very uh, ancient craft in some cases, and it can take a very, very long time to make, um, you know, some of the crafted teas. I mean, for like a good Phoenix Mountain Oolong, that probably requires six months of work post plucking, you know, post harvest. Um, and I don't think that's the result of people kind of just taking their time and, and not um, doing things the right way. I think it's the result of allowing the plants to go through these various stages of transformation. And so on the flip side, I think with cannabis, there's going to be a market, I feel personally, in the next few years to, for people to find out how to work with some of the therapeutic qualities of the flavonoids produced in the tea leaves, or I'm sorry, in the cannabis leaves, but uh, do it in a way that um, kind of brings a little bit of this expert level knowledge from the tea world where they know how to take leaves they know how to process the flavonoids they know how to maximize their health benefits and they've been doing it for thousands and thousands of years um, and there's a lot of similarity between cannabis and tea so i i think that that's going to be a good market in the future yeah it's really really interesting um i you know it's similar as well i think when you talk about those like really short windows of time for some of these cultivars it, it makes me think about like vanilla right and the vanilla bean mostly grown in madagascar and they have like one day a year and it's all pollinated by hand and if they miss that opportunity there's no other chance it's another year they've got to wait and then it's again it's all pollinated by hand uh, where nature isn't even intervening this is something where we as humans are making this happen yeah yeah and that kind of you know maybe fits into the the role that uh these compounds have as as far as nutritional substances for the human body but you know also in the soil we look at the chemistry of flavonoids in the soil and they have these remarkable effects with symbiotic bacteria and microbes i mean certain flavonoids are used by plants to mediate these relationships and in certain cases they can secrete these compounds from the roots and then the uh, effect is that these microbes sort of explode in their populations um, the flavonoids can both be a carbon source and interestingly enough as the as certain species of microbes break particular flavonoids down they don't break them down all the way they may break them down 
uh, so far and then repurpose the remaining molecular structure to use in their own primary pathways. You know, so here's an example of this very tight relationship that the plants have. They're giving a microbe not only something that it can eat, but also something that it can kind of repurpose and use for its own primary needs. And this is sort of the, the interesting aspect um, of flavonoids, I think, that, you know, particularly for root chemistry and soil health, you know, if we're talking about ways to uh, increase nutrient density of plants, we ought to look at some of the compounds here that can help stimulate some of these natural relationships, kind of get them going in the right direction and allow for the accumulation of um, some of these really highly nutrient dense products that otherwise the plants would not be able to produce. I mean, there's global annual estimates peg the total uh, crop loss around the world at about 50% due to abiotic and biotic stress. I mean, that's no joke. That's half of uh, the world's food supply every single year is lost because um, of some stress factor that was associated with you know that year or that particular region, uh, or maybe even down to just the nearest plant. Maybe it got something that it didn't want. Um, and it's just one of those things where flavonoids have such broad functionality. You know, they can chelate heavy metals. They can act on uh, iron and phosphorus in the soil to help release that to plants. They have this ability to modulate soil chemistry in ways that are highly beneficial. And so the thought here, um, and I'll pass this back to you after this, Jason, the thought here is that we've got to look at ways to kind of enhance the ability for crops grown around the world to perform in conditions where annually, year after year, we're losing about 50% of the biomass. Like this is, this is not a small amount, this is a huge amount. And so flavonoids play a, a big role in, in the solution. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, the, the soil health aspect of it is definitely an area that I think is, is the place where we probably want to dig in um, the most. Uh, we can talk about flavors and tastes, but, you know, I think the impacts on the plant health um, and it's the, uh, how it actually shifts uh, the biology, it can shift the soil biology because it's making some chemical changes down there and all of that. I think that's definitely the area that we want to go down. Uh, we've also passed the half hour mark, so I'm going to also bring up a couple people um, from the crowd to join in and, and uh, we'll open up the floor for, for people who want to come up from the audience as well shortly. Um, but uh, yeah, so absolutely the, the aspect of plant health and soil and the soil is, is definitely the place I think I wanted to focus the most for this grow and tell because we want to talk about growing healthy plants. Um, so I think that's a great place to dive in. Yeah, yeah. And I think with the flavors, you know, aside from the flavors and the taste, um, flavonoids oftentimes, um, you know, have different properties to them. And so like anthocyanins, for example, those, those beautiful blue pigments that we oftentimes see in flowers, well, those may not necessarily um, have a taste by themselves, but there may be some kind of esters also present that are derived from the same pathway. Because um, again, it all just comes back to, you know, one or two pathways. Ultimately, I think with all flavonoids, they are the result of one pathway called shikimic acid pathway which gives rise to aromatic amino acids. So if you ever look on Google and type in aromatic amino acid, you'll find like they have a ring structure in the center. And that ring structure is very important. And that's one of the pathways that these flavonoids are derived from. The second one is, you know, the acetate pathway. Um, but those two pathways kind of put together in a variety of different ways will create over 10,000 distinct molecules. So there's this very like broad spectrum of, you know, tastes and aromas and uh, colors and smells and, 
you know, some of these colors like the pigments, the anthocyanins, the color can depend on the pH. You know, if I took a delphinidin, for instance, and I exposed it to a low pH, it would be like a bright pink. It would be like a very beautiful magenta, bright pink. But alternatively, if I bring that pH up to seven, it's going to eventually turn more and more to blue, like the most beautiful clear blue that you've ever seen. And then if I take it above that, the molecular structure quickly breaks down. It will turn from green to gold, and then the pigment itself will completely denature. So it breaks down in the presence of a high pH solution. However, it is fully protonated, meaning it's most active in a low pH solution. So um, yeah, there's some, there's some uh, pharmaceutical implications here with pH adjustment with certain flavonoids and how they can potentially act as sort of redox buffers in uh, human chemistry and nutraceutical chemistry too. How's it going, son? I'm doing very good. Uh, I appreciate all the knowledge base up on stage, and thank you very much for inviting me. I think with the soil, we also have to talk about UV and infrared and its play in the sun and the sunlight in association to flavonoids uh, and its ability basically to bring out those specific compounds to be able to create those flavonoids. Uh, obviously, a lot of this happens at the very end of the plant's, well, not the plant's life, if you believe it's uh, annual versus a perennial. But I think that also we have to bring in sunlight into the picture as well with regards to flavonoids. Don't you guys think that as well? Yeah, I mean, particularly when the anthocyanins are or can be produced in response to ultraviolet radiation that would otherwise maybe stress a plant out, particularly at higher altitudes. It's something that's pretty ubiquitous in tea is that the higher the elevation the tea grows at, the more concentrated it is uh, and the more abundant it is not only in flavonoids, but um, specifically the purple pigments, those anthocyanins. So, yes, I think you're I see you've also joined us for this evening, Alex. Welcome. Thanks yeah. for Yeah, thanks for jumping up. I appreciate that. Um, sun is definitely going to have some impact. I mean, we know that light, as I mentioned in the article before, just having light impact uh, on onions, they lost 80% of their flavonoids within a couple of weeks. We know that light exposed to cannabis is going to degrade the terpenes, it's going to degrade the cannabinoids, it's definitely going to degrade the flavonoids as well. Um, and, you know, I think we, we've talked a little bit how those colors change, you know, those, you can see the color change on fruits and vegetables and things like that over time, they tend to lose some of that brightness, some of that, some of that color, um, which again is some of those flavonoids uh, leaking out uh, into the atmosphere. Did you have more to add on that, son? Uh, no, I, I think you've got it there. But when you were just talking about a, a abiotic and biotic, I think that whole symbiotic relationship uh, of having both of those available with pure interesting part of this is we've been able to do some very, you know, uh, interesting things, or at least our growers have with regards to aging, to be able to retain not only the terpenes, but 
uh, a lot of the compounds by a very slow age. Because, you know, as you well know, you can do a really great job in growing your cannabis, but if you don't know how to cure and, and dry in a way to retain all that, you lose all that great work. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, absolutely. It's all about the strong finish. <laughs> um, I, I, um, you spend five, six months, all of your energy and time on this plant and not put in the extra couple of weeks to properly a, you know, try and cure and prepare this cannabis for its long rest. Um, you know, you, you really are trying to get it as close to a suspended state of animation as possible, I guess, uh, is what I'd liken it. Yeah, and, and from my perspective, you know, like you were saying, son, there, there is something to be said about some of these terpenes and how they um, transform in the presence of light and oxygen. You know, there was that famous study a couple of years ago that had uh, characterized this uh, terpene called hashanine, and they basically were looking at, you know, compounds that uh, were found in hash that increased the potency of the cannabis, and they basically found that there's these sets of, you know, chemical reactions that occur, particularly with myrcene and maybe some of the other monoterpenes, but they have this particular configuration in their carbon bonds that allows them to actually accept that energy from light in the presence of oxygen. And they transform in such a way that potentiates that terpene. I think in this specific example, they were looking at myrcene and um, investigated how it had um, transformed into the substance called hashanine, which was significantly more potent. So that, that process is perhaps a little bit different than simply just letting your buds sit out without any regard to the amount of light that they're getting as a sensitizer, for instance. Um, and, uh, you know, the curing part of it as I think where this kind of comes down. And as I mentioned with tea earlier, you know, here's an example of a plant whose leaves are picked and the processing techniques may involve several months of actual work being accomplished, enzymatic transformations occurring, non-enzymatic transformations occurring as well. Um, some of these things do take time and, and they end up potentiating the experience overall. So, you know, like I said, with particular types of oolongs, the Phoenix Mountain oolongs, uh, are my personal favorite. You will never find anything more fragrant and aromatic and wonderful. It will stink up the whole house and it will smell profound to say the least. Um, but it has very little to do with terpenes, for instance. And on the flip side too, it's got very little caffeine because of the, the types of leaves that are used in the plucking standard. But, you know, again, these, these compounds have a, an ability to be transformed properly over time and retain some of their therapeutic qualities. Um, they're not like, uh, you know, 100% going to degrade. Um, they can be worked through some transformations that, that are good for them ultimately. The other thing to, to think about, you know, we, we always have normalized <clears throat> around the par range, uh, at least for the indoor growing. But even I think we've taken it to sort of the limits. We think it's the limits, but when you're up in the 700 nanometer range, you know, you were just talking about anthocyanins. Um, but so it happens not only above that in the infrared and the far red range, because the plant photoreceptors uh, and some of the phytochrome work that happens in, in the plants uh, happen beyond the PAR range. So having the UVA, UVB, depending on location um, 
because most most of the ones you know that have a very good expression are between the Tropic of Capricorn and the, and the Tropic of Cancer, which is around the, and the, and the Earth tilt in that is very, very, very small uh, compared, uh, obviously, during the harvest, you know, you're in, in one spot. But, but I think that also has a lot to do with the full expression of the plant and its ability to create those flavonoids uh, and, and uh, to actually do full expression. Uh, what are your thoughts about that with regards to the UV and the far, far reds with, with regards to the, uh, the plant photoreceptors and flavonoids? Well, I mean, I think it's, for me personally, it's a little bit more, you know, characterized coming from the UV side of things. That whole structure function, you know, relationship has been kind of mapped out. So people understand more or less, hey, if I expose the plant to ultraviolet light, spectrum the plant is going to have a physiological response that physiological response is the manifestation of that is going to be something that's equivalent to let's say a sunscreen or some kind of pigment that helps the plant absorb this frequency of light that otherwise damages it uh and similarly i mean chlorophyll is also a pigment it, it soaks up a different wavelength of light one that is not damaging to the plant and so the plants have this vested interest in making sure that all of their sensitive photosynthetic equipment is running smooth and it's running cool. So as electrons get passed back and forth between these protein complexes uh, that ultimately generate the reduction power that the plants need to reduce the nitrates or reduce the sulfates or reduce the carbon dioxide out of the air, um, these things are basically um, funneled around in the plant in such a way where certain hormones like jasmonic acid, for instance, uh, regulates flavonoid expression. And so theoretically, if you had plants that um, did not have the, you know, the jasminate pathway being expressed, you would theoretically put a bottleneck uh, on that particular expression of that, that color or that pigment. So it comes down to me, like you were saying earlier, this kind of symbiotic understanding that the plants, you know, it's a very complex process overall. There's multiple signals. There's plenty of pathways for the plant to go down to produce any number of 10,000 plus different compounds, I think, that have been characterized so far, somewhere between five and 10 grand, depending on you know who you're asking who you're talking to but these, these these compounds do have secondary benefits like the absorption of reactive oxygen species for example like we talked about earlier uh, or soaking up particular you know frequencies of light uh, mediating relationships in the soil for example uh, there's all kinds of different uh, interactions that these have both within plant cells within the nucleus you know around the cell walls for example even just in the roots and how it controls um, microbial activity and microbial growth so yeah, hope that answered your question. Yeah, and just to add on to that, I mean that's you know I mean that's one of the that's one of the points of terroir to get to your point, right? You're getting different different angles of light in different locations, and those different angles of light are providing different levels of all of the spectrum, um, and so you're going to get different flavors. That's why um, the grapes grown on the north side of the mountain are going to be different than the grapes that are grown on the east side or the west side of the mountain, and they're going to have different flavors even if they're the same exact cultivar. Um, those, you, you know, the same effect in cannabis. The cannabis grown in, you know, one part of the country is going to have a different 
different flavor profile than the one that's grown in a di the same cultivar grown in a different area. You're going to get different aspects of the of the plant is going to come out, and some of it is definitely the soil aspects of it, obviously, and the microbial life that is in that is present in that environment. But you're also definitely affected a lot by the location and angle of the sun in those different areas. So, yeah, no, great point, uh, son. Uh, Joni, how are you doing tonight? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Joni, for those that don't know, is part of, and actually really one of the core of uh, Ideal Craft Cannabis, which is a new company getting established here in Massachusetts, and that's the team of people I'm going to be working with. So, uh, Joni, welcome to the stage. Thank you very much. Um, I just wanted to thank you all for a very um, wonderful and enlightening presentation. Um, this was this was um, <laughs> this was awesome, and um, just wanted to maybe ask the panel if they could share, you know, any resources, research for more information on profiling flavonoids and um, features and benefits, you know, because as one of the aspects I'm thinking of is, is just educating our future consumers on, you know, the, you know, some of the, the features and benefits of this wonderful plant. Um, and I'll leave it there and, and thank you very much. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. That's a, that's a great question. And it's funny because I see Sohan uh, down below there, Sohan Shen, who's uh, actually uh, part of MCR Labs, which is one of the main testing facilities here in Massachusetts. And I was curious when he's going to have a flavonoid test included in that uh, spectrum with the cannabinoids and the terpenes in there. So um, I think I just gave you a new product idea, Sohan. So I'll take 10% uh, off the top of those sales. Don't worry about it. You don't have to worry about the subscription side of it. We'll just, Joni and I will split it. Um, the business right there. I like. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I think, um, you know, for us to be able to offer it, um, I think to be able to label it, to advertise it, to market it, we're going to need to be able to certify it in some way, shape, or form. Um, as you know, <laughs> from all the stuff you've been reading recently, uh, the way that the regulations are written on what you can and can't say about the compounds, what you know, CBD can and can't do for you, what THC can and can't do for you medically. Um, I think terpenes, when you start talking about terpenes, you can kind of follow some of the aromatherapy cues um, and some of those holistic path cues. Um, so maybe we can talk about some of those same types of topics that people talk about today with the benefits, the antioxidant benefits of certain terpenes or flavonoids uh, uh, of um, the uh, anthocyanins and um, some of those other compounds that are have these antioxidant capabilities. And we can talk about them from the flavonoid aspect, um, talking about that these flavonoids have these known quantities, and maybe that's the angle we take at it from a marketing standpoint, which I know you love. The, the other thing, to add a little bit to what Nick was saying, uh, cover, cover crops, obviously, with regards to the gas, and uh, also we've found that they obviously play a big role as well. 
we do know we if we can control the adaptive stress along with the uh, abiotic and biotic uh, to emulate uh, a specific chemovar from a specific area, that's when we get that full flavonoid. Um, and yes, obviously the UV is important, but I think the, the far red is also when you go beyond that. Uh, I'm not just talking circadian rhythm and the fact that it has to rest and all of that, but, but it does do also, I, uh, I believe, play a, a role in that. But when you have that, when you have it with living soil, when you have it with cover crops, when you're doing some uh, uh, controlled, you know, adaptive stress on it, because that's really what really creates a lot of this, uh, like a sun protectant that Nick was talking about, is when you get that beautiful expression. That's when you get that dank. Uh, with regards to the testing, you know, I'm I'm just a little bit. <laughs> and I hope the panel also feels this way. When you're only testing for one or two of the cannabinoids and you're only looking at the terpenes uh, for the most part in testing that you just brought up, it's kind of hard because there's so many other compounds that work in symphony, that work in this uh, beautiful plant that to characterize it on just a specific amount of compounds and then trying to find out how the standard is like what are you testing against to be able to know where you are oh absolutely absolutely really problematic yeah no I, I definitely I definitely agree that um, it's not it, we do the, the testing component limits our ability to fully share what's going on with the plant in many ways. Um, and those differences between the way that people do those same tests uh, is also somewhat problematic. Um, but again, because we're, and again, I, some of it has to do with the way the regulations are put in place and the way that we can inform the public, um, there's limitations on what we can do without that testing or that chemical backup. So that, that was more my point of it. Um, I do agree, though, it is definitely problematic that we have some limitations based on the amount of uh, compounds that are being tested. That requirement to be able to directly relate um, these compounds to a benefit is, you know, is something that we're all looking for uh, to be able to promote uh, to say these things. And until we can, um, it's hard to claim this as a medical product uh, in many of those cases. I, I would love to be involved if people are collaborating in that space. I would love to be involved in that to be able to, to provide the the very uniform sunlight so you can use it as a standard from which to do your work. And so anybody that's in that space, whether in the genetics area or we're looking at very high quality medicinal, I'm very open for that. So please DM me. I'm not trying to sell anything here. I'm just trying to find the best way to get the highest quality medicine and nutrient rich plants out. Uh, so anyway, just. Absolutely. just yep. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you very much, son. Nick, did you want to add on to that before we move on to Alex? 
Yeah, you got to drink more tea if you guys want to experience some of the health benefits. And I'm, you know, I'm serious. Try to find some good loose leaf tea. Find if you like a white tea or a green tea or an oolong tea or even a black tea and then just learn about it because all of these health benefits, um, I, you know, again, tea is a plant that's been processed for thousands and thousands of years. And there's a very, very good understanding that's kind of deeply ingrained in, in the tea culture and tea community of how to take flavonoids that are raw and they're sort of raw natural form and process them with respect to their medicinal and therapeutic qualities. Um, and again, I mean, tea is one of those beverages that you can process it in hundreds of different ways and you end up with flavors in the cup that are completely different from one another, uh, depending on the cultivar as well. But also in some cases, it comes down to processing technique. Um, and it's just the most expansive flavor profiles that you could ever think to exist. Everything from grassy, like a freshly mowed lawn, all the way to honey and orchids being brewed out of a cup and you have no idea how this is not scented artificially or, or, or perfumed with something because your entire house smells like wildflower honey. Someone walks in and they're like, whoa, do you have bees here or something? And you say, no, I'm literally just brewing this tea and the aroma is coming out of the tea leaves. But again, these aromatic compounds, some of these uh, therapeutically active compounds, they require uh, skill and transformation. So. Um, if our level of understanding right now, as far as cannabis and flavonoid chemistry goes, if we can equate that to us being in a more primitive caveman state, then the tea culture and the tea world is definitely quantum physics and they're in a computer lab. So we have a lot to learn from them. That's all I wanted to say before we pass the mic over to Al. People grabbing for their epi pens as they come through the door at your house. I love it. <laughs> all right, Alex, what's going on? Not much. Uh, blessed to be a part of this. You guys are dropping some information. I appreciate it. I just sorry to jump in earlier. You guys are just dancing around my question. Uh, I was really curious. First off, I'm uh, I like cannabis, but I'm not too scientific when it comes to terminologies. I'm curious if you could might maybe explain the difference between a flavonoid, a terpenoid, and esters of the plant. And how would one identify those in their cultivar with um, most labs not testing? Or if they do, I don't know. That, that would my, those were my questions. Thank you. Hmm. Well, let's, uh, let's take a look here. Uh, Dr. Mark, are you around by any chance? I'm a, I'm a chemist. Can I help? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Welcome, Dr. Mark. All right. I've wanted to chime in for a couple minutes now, so a couple things. Um, uh, first of all, for folks who don't know me, I'm, I'm Mark Sheldon. I'm a, a PhD organic chemist with about 25 years industrial experience as a natural products chemist and been consulting in the cannabis industry for the last eight or nine years. So a uh, few things. Um, so yeah, these are really interesting and very interesting uh, structurally, the, the, the flavonoids. And, and often what, what we're looking at when you look at, like if you look at the structure of canflavin or uh, quercetin or any one of these uh, flavonoids, often what, what they depict is what's called A-glycone. The A-glycone is the phenolic portion of the molecule, and that's the thing that looks like a cannabinoid. In fact, a couple of these things look really like CBG. One of them has got kind of like the CBG tail between a resource now, just like CBD. So they're very related in that they're uh, along the malonic acid biosynthetic pathway, so they're very related 
Um, it, it, it's very interesting because, um, like, when we look at the data for our, uh, we make low temperature uh, extractions for a variety of different uh, medicinal and recreational markets across the country. And when we look at our data, especially like with live resin, now realize with live resin you're extracting fresh frozen materials, so you're getting a much larger terpene load in your extract than you normally would if you uh, extracted uh, dried and cured material. And when we do analysis at third-party labs, and let me tell you something, the third-party labs have gotten a whole lot better in the last handful of years. So, you know, I think that that's just uh, where we are in the innovation curve. You know, we're at the beginning of that S-curve, and I think when there are standardized methods rolled out by certifying bodies, it will be really good to get standardization across the industry. But... Um, be that as it may, um, we can quantify the amount of terpenes and the amount of total cannabinoids in our extracts, and we're getting pretty close to 100%. We could characterize up to 90 to 95% of what we're extracting, what are in our products, which is really great for the consumer and certainly great for the, uh, for the business because you're really extracting the highest value of what you can get from that plant to put it into medicine for those folks. So are there flavonoids in there? You know what? And as a chemist, I, you know, I love these kinds of detective stories because I do have sophisticated instrumentation to try to figure it out and figure out what is that other 5%. Well, you got to remember that as there are in their native form, when they're conjugated with sugars, they're not going to be very soluble in things like butane or propane. But with ethanol, it's a completely different story. So with ethanol, our extracts, the best we can characterize is probably maybe about 80%. There's still 20% of unknowns, which usually uh, extractors or chemists call fats, waxes, and lipids, but part of the you know, full-spectrum entourage of what you're extracting from the plant, which, because the alcohol is much more promiscuous than the butane. See, when you extract with butane, it's so nonpolar, it's just ideal for getting uh, cannabinoid acids and the terpenes, which is what you know, humans, humans love. I always say, while it's true that terpenes drew humans to cannabis, cannabinoids that may stay. So we can use that. Anyway, um, so to get back to flavonoids, though, so um, I think the point is, is that, yes, cannabis is rich in flavonoids. I think often they're conjugated with sugars, making them water-soluble and making them not nonpolar and not the type of thing that you're going to pull out in an extraction. I think that's the kind of stuff that is, again, falls into the bucket of the full-spectrum extract, and hopefully it's the, um, you know, it's the glycosylated uh, aglycone. So it's the, it's the flavonoid in its native form, which is the sugar, which I think Nick had pointed out helps make the compound soluble because these phenols aren't very soluble. Uh, and again, that might um, describe 
why we don't see them when we do analytical chemistry on extracts when we use non-polar solvents. So just to sum up, I think that yes, there are definitely flavonoids, cannabis plant is rich with them. However, I think that not all extracts contain flavonoids, and especially flavonoids in their glycosylated forms. So the full spectrum extracts that you can get uh, and then use as a tincture, now you're actually delivering those anthocyanin. Because if you look at the anthocyanin molecules, they're basically uh, dye molecules, um, but they're conjugated to sugars. And certainly in a distillate, no way those glycosyl linkages are going to last. So if that stuff is in your ethanol and you're distilling it, well, that might be part of the degradation products that you can taste in some certain distillates because those things are too high in molecular weight and they're, they're interesting molecules called thiolopsanes, zvitterions. <laughs> It's a Swiss word. Mm. So they have a cation and an anion in the same molecule, and that's what gives them their very interesting UV and optical properties. So they're often conjugated with sugars, and again, those things will never survive a, a distillation, but certainly, like if you do a full-spectrum extract and then use... Um, uh, you know, like a, a MCT tincture or some type of way of delivering that, you could actually get the compounds in their native form, which is the glycosylated form of the flavonoids. So there's the flavonoids, and then there's the flavonoids that are conjugated to the sugars. I believe it's the ones that are conjugated to the sugars that are Okay, that's Dr. Mark. I didn't know about Thank you so much. I was just curious. So, like, are uh, just to kind of comprehend that in layman's terms, would you say like flavonoids are more volatile than terpenoids? Yeah, these compounds are not volatile. As soon as you put that much molecular weight into a structure, they're not. They, you, you need you need high vacuum distillation to move them in a, in, in, in a way where you're taking advantage of any difference in volatility. Now, I, I believe in a, in a distillation process, most of these molecules would degrade. And they might degrade, again, to their parent phenol compound. But I don't believe that the glycosyl, uh, uh, the glycosylated uh, aglycones will distill under the conditions that people are using, like white film distillation or short path distillation to make cannabis basis and hemp-derived Dr. Mark, I had a, a question. Uh, this is Sun. Yes. Um, our growers have uh, had good luck with certainly water, but have you done any work in cryogenic uh, in, in below that to see whether or not uh, you can retain it? Cryogenic extraction? Yes. Oh, I'm really good friends with the biggest hippie in California who does cryogenics. That would be Chris Peroni. Yes. None other than Peroni. Yeah. So, so um, you, you know, I I've, uh, I don't like the way. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, I've tried some material. I mean, uh, to for making artisan concentrates. No, 
Right, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, I don't, I don't ever use it for myself. I always do a flower vapor riser if I can. Or, but, um, but thank you for that. You bet. And I'm glad you brought up something about the concentration of flavonoids in the actual trichome head because I feel like that's an important distinction that we have to kind of look at in the sense that you know this whole plant produces medicinal compounds, but as I was hinting at earlier, not all of these medicinal compounds get accumulated uh, to the same extent. And so, you know, in the actual trichome heads, you're more likely to find cannabinoids than you are just anywhere across the leaf surface. Um, I actually don't think that cannabinoids are biosynthesized outside of the trichome head structure. But, you know, here's an example of a very particular and specific region where these molecules get accumulated. And we have to kind of look at the metabolic pathways and the overall metabolic fate of some of these molecules with anthocyanins and with flavonoids uh, and compounds like that, phenolic compounds, that sort of ring structure lends itself very well to soaking up stress. And so the plants, you know, have a vested interest in producing a compound that can help them deal with the stress of their day-to-day -day existence. And as they try to grow, uh, they get exposed to more stress. So these compounds like Dr. Mark said, they're kind of sandwiched between things that make them soluble in water, and the, the, that's how the plants like to keep them in a particular state. There are examples of what's called post-translational modification. Glycosylation, in other words, the attaching of sugars, is one example. Another example we've also brought up is chemical reduction or oxidation. These are also examples of how substances may be modified. Um, there's certainly other ones, methylation, acetylation, prenylation, samoylation, good luck saying that one. Um, these are all examples of modifications that plants uh, make on certain compounds. Uh, like Dr. Mark was saying, that actual pigment is the aglycone portion. It's the portion that's not attached to the sugar. That's the part that actually gives the visual cue and the color, but you know, the plants have to find a way to solubilize it and to transport it effectively. And if it's not soluble in water, they have to find a way to make it soluble in water. That's where some of these modifications come into play. So, you know, again, with the flavonoids, they typically don't have the types of modifications that would allow them to accumulate within the resinous trichome heads. Although, you know, maybe other phenylpropanoid derivatives, other phenolic compounds, uh, but certainly flavonoids is their own kind of distinct a subset of this larger pathway, um, it's it's more likely that we're going to find them accumulated in the leaves. But they do have an entourage effect too. There is some benefit in interaction between flavonoids and uh, cannabinoids and terpenes. They all sort of modulate one another, and that's the kind of third dimension to this, you know, topic about the entourage effect that we want to open up. Is here's an entire class of compounds that uh, has this ability to modify cannabinoid metabolism and. Um, the sort of the dynamics of how it's metabolized in the body. So, yeah. So I just want to take a quick second to relight the room real quick because we've been going for an hour. Um, so just to reset the room real quickly, uh, this is the Future Cannabis Project, uh, and I am Hote Herb. This is Hote Herb's Grow and Tell, and tonight we are talking about flavonoids, the third member of the Cannabis Holy Trinity. Um, cannabinoids, 
terpenes, flavonoids. Um, Nick from uh, The Rooted Leaf uh, is the primary guest tonight. This is, uh, although Peter, this is Peter's fantastic platform, Future Cannabis Project. We also have a whole bunch of folks joining us, uh, listening in on YouTube, um, and, and hopefully putting in some fantastic comments for us to follow up with as well. So uh, thank you again for all those listening in and, and participating in the conversation tonight. I'll turn it back over to you, Dr. Mark. Oh, I'm sorry. I just got all heated up because I was um, making the connection to what Nick had said earlier about green tea. I mean, remember, tea is a water extract, right? So I, I think this actually speaks to the benefit of juicing whole cannabis because you're basically getting the, the native compounds as they exist in the plant in sort of their unadulterated form. So I mean, absolutely, I would think that there's certainly some benefit beyond um, uh, that. I would just say dietary and nutritional benefit beyond just the medicinal aspects. I just wanted to add that that last little component. Yeah. Thanks for having this room. This has been really uh, very stimulating. Let me know if you have any more chemistry questions. <laughs> absolutely, and I, I didn't want to up. I'm sorry to interrupt your flow, but I want to make sure we got that we got that in there. And I really appreciate you joining us tonight, Dr. Mark. We haven't had a chance to talk before, so this is great. Um, I, I really appreciate you joining yeah. into the conversation tonight. Peter sent me an email to invite me, so I, I like had, had it on my Google schedule, and I was like, "Okay, let me sit down, fire up the rig, and get on." Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, yeah, no, I totally agree that I think there's a tremendous benefit in the juicing um, of the leaves and uh, other parts of the plant. Um, you know, when we consume the whole plant and we consume it in a raw form, uh, especially in a juiced form, that's when we get the most benefits. That's when you're going to get all those flavonoids. Uh, they're not going to be cooked off or heated off in, in some of the other preparations and things like that. So, yeah, I completely agree there. I, I also agree with the doctor, too, because I think we've gotten to the point of normalizing over-processing of a lot of things, including our food, but, but with cannabis especially. So I would agree with that. Uh, Nick, one of the things I wanted to also add, you know, in, in some of the indoor stuff we're doing with sunlight, uh, we've done um, Hawaiian land race and a Mexican land race where we do get... Uh, uh, no sugar on the leaves now, obviously, and they're not as pronounced as on the flower, uh, as the trichome bud. But um, that's also something that Frenchy Cannoli uh, used quite a bit in his hash stuff. Um, but you know, it, 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 I think it all it's depending on chemovar, but you are obviously, I think you know this already. But anyway, I just wanted to add that we've been able to see quite a bit of uh of sugar on, on, on the leaves as well as the flowers. And I just wanted to piggyback real quick on the, the notion of the, the flavonoids are transformed just like terpenes and cannabinoids. You know, if you harvest a, a good plant that is suitable for hash making, you know that at the point of harvest, the material is not yet ready. Um, and it's a little bit ironic that the plant produces something that gets processed in this way where even after it's separated from the rest of the plant matter, these compounds still transform over time. And like I said, with tea, it just, uh, there's volumes and volumes of information about how the tea flavonoids, like the catechins in, in you know, particular, how those oxidize and transform over time. 
And we've kind of characterized these are the resulting products. This is their sort of biological relevancy. Some of them, for instance, stimulate appetite, others suppress it. Others may be good at uh, fighting off, you know, viral and bacterial disease pressures. Um, others may be really good for cardiovascular reasons. I mean, you know, part of this is that we should treat this as an opportunity to look at cannabis as a plant that can also be transformed in a complex way, meaning that just because we pluck the leaves off the plant, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's right there and ready to go. Um, because if you've ever had green tea like that, you know, it's not the same as green tea that's been processed, uh, you know, in, the, in a style that's similar to like a famous type of tea, let's say dragon oil green tea. You know, you have to pluck that, you have to control the rate of oxidation to not encourage the enzymes to fully oxidize, then you have to pan fry it real quick for a short amount of time at a high temperature. There's probably three or four different dozen derivatives and variations of these simple, very, very simple processing steps. But what that leads to in the cup is a medicinal drink, something that you can drink that has therapeutic properties. And that didn't come as a result of the, the tea plant, quote unquote, naturally producing it and having that molecule be ready at the point of the plant leaf being plucked or the flower being plucked. You know, even with cannabis flowers, there's still decarboxylation that has to occur. If you smoke the acidic cannabinoids, you're not going to have the same effects as if you allow them to decarboxylate, which is, you know, in other words, removing an organic acid from the equation. So on the front end, you got to be obsessed with how the organic acids got there in the first place. What are these pathways that the plants are taking? How are they making them? But then on the back side, how do you keep these uh, compounds in the constant state of transformation and change so that you do get the most medicinal uh, and therapeutic qualities out of it. Um, I will say the cultivars real quick in closing, the cultivars that I drink uh, that make the Phoenix Mountain oolongs, I would not get the same effects if they were processed into a green tea or a black tea or even a white tea. Um, they, they belong, so, so to speak, they belong being oolongs and it takes up to six months to make, but that's the real value of that particular uh, and that medicinal plant is it requires some transformation. All right. So let's go on to A and then Matt, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, take it from there. So A, what's going on today? How are you doing tonight? You've been patiently waiting. Hey, what's up, Jason? Uh, I got a question for uh, Dr. Mark. He seems like uh, one of the experts in the, in the room right now. Uh, yeah, how you doing, Dr. Mark? All right, man. What's happening, man? I'm chilling, man. Just whipping up some dinner, man, and listening to all this uh, the knowledge y'all dishing out. So I just had one. I actually had many questions, but just sitting here, you you all pretty much answered them all, and many more has arisen just <laughs> off the depth of this uh, topic. But another question I do have is why aren't the flavonoids soluble in water? Like, do they create a like defense mechanism where they're inactive because? You know they they're not they're not um, able to you know mix with that compound. What is it? Well, they're, they're soluble in water because I think they ultimately serve a kind of like a purpose, like a hormone. So I think Nick was speaking to this earlier. They have to be able to trans be transported from cell to cell because yeah, I think the signaling end of the molecule is the the um, the a glycone, which is a resorcinol-based phenol, it's a chalcone, which is a very interesting uh, 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 functional group. Um, I think someone was saying before. Again, the redox properties are such that if it's in an oxidizing environment, it might be one color in a 
uh, reducing environment. It's another color. But I, I think the, the answer to your question, the reason why they're water soluble is because they have a, a sugar attached to it. And the sugar um, has got hydroxyl groups, which makes it very hydrophilic. And that's, um, that usually makes things water soluble. And so that explains why we don't see it again when we extract uh, cannabis with non-polar salt. All right, I do want to move on to Matt uh, because Matt uh, contacted me, reached out to me earlier because he was super excited we were going to be talking about this topic. So I want to let you go ahead, Matt. What's going on, man? How you doing? Matt, are you there? Yeah, there my bad, go. guys. Here I am. All right. Uh, Welcome, Matt. Welcome. And you're new to Clubhouse, too, so fantastic. I, Did I get you yeah. to join Clubhouse? Is that what it is? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I tried a while back, but, you know, I'm an Android user, so you know how the world works. Oh, We're yeah. yeah. Delayed. I gotcha. I gotcha. And, and the app was really uh, poor at first for the Android users as well. It wasn't uh, very functional, is my understanding. Yeah, I'm glad I kind of waited. <laughs> um, thanks for all the uh, broad spectrum of you know, like information that's always you know like put out. But definitely tonight, um, one of the things we kind of played with it a little bit um, was uh, was uh, the nutrition of the soil or like the difference of soils or nutrient availabilities, um, changing different flavors and such. And one thing that is like notable that um, I think needs to be brought up that's been researched essentially across across the board, whether it be um, trees, grapes, I think grapes is really the most common. Um, but legumes and others um, showing that um, nitrogen is one of the the biggest um, uh, biggest uh, things that decreases um, flavonoids and fixed and volatile oils. So essentially, like terpenes across the board, whether they're um, you know, carrier or, or, um, you know, alcohols or such. Um, and it's by a notable amount too. And a lot of people, um, are like big on, you know, cover crops. And one of the biggest ones you see is, is, um, is, you know, clover or, um, nit a, a lot of nitrogen, um, fixing cover crops you know, like alfalfa absolutely lots of nitrogen fixers that's the yeah. main thing people like to throw in there absolutely and there's a broad a broad spectrum of you know like other like cover crops like if you're gonna do it um that that would help fix you um you know other nutrients that people should really start looking into i think um uh, but one of the biggest ones is, uh, you know, uh, or I guess one of the bigger things I wanted to talk about too is we were talking about, uh, or Nick Nick was talking about um, fl uh, flavonoids being uh, um, 
produced within the trichome head, which is totally true, but they're you know, even like produced um, down um, down in the roots, which is a much like the leaf, a very um, like me you know, like you know, like underlooked um, medicine from from the plant. It you know, like or the roots themselves produce a whole set of flavonoids and terpenes that are unique to the root structure. Um, and that's been, I mean, found since like China, they've since like the beginning of like China, they've been talking about, you know, the roots and the leaf, you know, and the, the, the acidic side of the cannabinoids. One more thing I wanted to like add is that the body can, can, um, can you know, like use them in a term that uh, we call like a pro drug, which is where it can uh, work it and activate it itself, which is really really um, useful, especially for children. Like I've been a caretaker for a couple years for uh, a couple different uh, like people and. I try and kind of go out of my way to help uh, uh, kids because a lot of people, yes, like cannabis helps, but there's really no reason for them to be getting the psychoactive effects because they could be getting all of the same effects through more like acidic forms and the body will use THC a like a pro drug and they'll get everything that they need but dodge the um dodge the uh psychoactive effect which is pretty neat um so that's one thing if people are super interested in using the leaf or even the flower or the root like you don't have to like activate it too much because the body is a pretty magical thing but yeah, no, that's, um, that's, yeah. That's, that's, that's interesting that you talk about the flavonoids in the roots, right? Because we, you know, Dr. Elaine Ingham, when she talks about the living, the food soil web or soil food web, um, she talks about the fact that plants release exodites, uh, which are sugars and carbohydrates, um, and those are used to attract the biology in the soil that convert the type of minerals and nutrients the plant needs. So the plant needs nitrogen. It releases the types of cookies and cakes that attract the biology that converts that nitrogen into that soluble form that the plant can absorb out of the minerals and nutrients and things that are within the soil. Um, and it does this all the time throughout its life. And all plants do this. Uh, they release those cookies and cakes. So yeah, why wouldn't, uh, along with those carbohydrates and sugars, and, and we heard from Dr. Mark that those, you know, and I think also from Nick that those sugar, there's always a sugar attached to those flavonoids. Um, so it makes perfect sense to me that those flavonoids would be in existence in that root zone as well as part of those structures that are being released. Um, and we know that they also do release um, things that help with protective nature of the plant itself, where it is releasing antibiotics and other things to help keep the root healthy and to help support the biology within that uh, food soil web. So that's that's uh, some really interesting uh, points on there. I appreciate that, Matt. Nick? 
Yeah, and, and the chemistry of flavonoids in the soil, you know, you, like Dr. Mark was mentioning, typically the plants will produce and transport these in a way that is soluble in water, but the actual molecule in question, the thing that we're talking about, that's not very soluble in water. So there's this interesting phenomena that occurs, and it is sort of specific to, let's call it the species or the type of flavonoid that's being produced or, or the phenylpropanoid for, for a larger sort of umbrella to be cast. Um, when the plants excrete these things out um, into the rhizosphere, there is some dehydration of the soil that occurs. And what happens is the, as the water leaves, the, uh, the substance sort of falls out in the soil. Um, it kind of coats the soil particle that it sits on, and it starts to modify some of the um, characteristics of what's going on around it. So some of this modification could include like metal chelation, for example. Um, it's been shown that certain flavonoids are produced to help plants deal with heavy metal stress because they have this ability to sort of soak it up and bind it up so that it doesn't become mobilized within the plant tissues. Um, and then like Jason was saying as well, there are these distinct relationship building and relationship destroying pathways. You know, there's certain species of fungi that uh, once the plants recognize this arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi is there, it's going to kick out a particular type of flavonoid. But sugars aside, there's something interesting about the signaling molecule. And I think where this starts to make a lot of sense is if you think about flower nectar as opposed to these root exudates. Think about how when roots grow through the soil, there's something happening where the, the, the roots themselves are physically pushing through a medium that is predominantly not composed of root material, right? It's soil, it's got minerals, it's got humic substances. It's the soup of very complex biochemical stuff that's happening that's the medium, that's the physical space for the roots to grow through. Similarly, when we're looking at a flower and that flower has nectar inside of it, the nectar is a soup. It's primarily sugar and sucrose, but there's also uh, other things inside of there, uh, other sort of signaling compounds, and those are what attract pollinators. It's not the presence of sugar so much as it is the presence of some other stimulatory compound. Uh, in some cases, like in tobacco flowers, it could be nicotine to help repel um, certain types of insects. I mean, think you know about you and your own body right now. How much do you weigh versus how many um, milligrams or even grams of cannabinoids do you need to actually elevate your consciousness to a different state of existence? You know, for most people, they can measure an active dose of cannabinoids by the 10 or 20 milligrams. But if you converted your body weight from pounds into milligrams, you'd be tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of milligrams. So think about how little it takes, 10, 20 cannab 10 to 20 milligrams of cannabinoids, to impact you as a creature that weighs, let's say, 100 billion milligrams. These are the, ty the, these are the types of things that are important to understand because when pollinators and things that are attracted, even uh, microbes in the soil, when they're attracted to particular molecules, you know, the carbon is a food source and as a substrate, yeah, that's, that's, that's great there, but there's also something else happening. There are genetic responses that microbes have. There is node factors going up. It's the microbes getting this flavonoid, the specific flavonoid, and the response that they have is too great to be described just by, hey, there was a little bit of a carbon as a food source or there was a sugar that kind of fed them or something like that. There was, it's like pouring jet fuel uh, on, into the mix, you know, if you have flavonoids and good flavonoid chemistry in the soil, you can really uh, create some explosive microbial activity. Um, but again, it, it has to do on a deeper level with what's being activated within the microbe. You know, is the microbe genetically responding to the plant's production of some of these secondary metabolites? And the answer overwhelmingly, I think, is yes, absolutely it is.
I think mm-hmm. you, you hit uh, something or you played with it and I just wanted to like touch on it really quick because I've seen a little bit of research on it um, is uh, plant to plant um, communication um, or you know, like essentially pollen exchange um, and the learned uh, the learned uh, like cues essentially from 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 plants um, and it could even be like small like cover crops like I mean if people wanted to vary um, their their terpene and flavonoid profiles there is some sort of research behind um, the variance of plants and their ability to communicate whether it be the roots or the pollen like connections which is pretty neat yeah i mean these are you know functionally they can be signaling molecules too um and you know there's something maybe there's a parallel here with uh, carotenoids actually they're not you know they're technically terpenoids but carotenoids are really interesting because they are engineered by the plant to soak up excess light energy that would otherwise cause catastrophic and irreversible damage to chlorophyll and no grower wants that on his plants certainly if you've ever burned your leaves before you know that if they're brown and crinkly you lift the light up you, the green color is not coming back the plant is going to have to grow some new tissue so to a certain extent, the energy of the light and the sun uh, in the presence of oxygen can lead to the irreversible destruction of some of these pigments. So carotenoids have been engineered by these plants to soak up the excess light energy. And there's this really clever thing that happens when the carotenoids themselves get overloaded with light energy. There's a particular nick in their molecular skeleton that breaks, and it creates a class of compounds called apocarotenoids. One of these apocarotenoids is called abscisic acid which is a hormone that downregulates plant growth. It says, hey, it's time to stop taking in the light intensity because it's getting a little too intense here. The fail-safes are starting to fail. So, you know, in a lot of ways, it's really remarkable. Here's this beautiful example of how plants are just masters of carbon chemistry. They've managed to produce a compound that, whose job it is to soak up extra, you know, excess light energy. But when it soaks up too much excess light energy, it breaks down into something that tells the plant it's time to stop taking in that light energy. Um, so there is a little bit of a dance that goes on there, too, in that context. The other thing that, uh, <clears throat> uh, Nick, you're absolutely right. The, but with light energy, if you have a uniform spectra, you see that less. If you're going down to a singular uh, wavelength, like uh, LEDs that are blue and red, uh, they really do create that, or even with the HPS lights where you've got a very high peak. But for the most part, we haven't seen that much when you have full spectra. The other thing I wanted to just add, uh, I've got to go, and I really appreciate every, you know, the invite up here. But uh, Elaine and also Jeff Lowenfels would, would, would agree to this. There's also plasma that's in the roots uh, as well. They're activated uh, along with what's going on with the cover crop and certainly the extradites and the, the microbes and the soil in this beautiful symbiotic uh, you know, life that goes on under the, under the dirt. Um, and so with that plasma, it's frequency too. And one of the things that missing and people don't talk about very much is the green light and its ability to not only penetrate through, not have the sort of shadow effect, but also uh, uh, 
activate below the surface and uh, the microbes are looking for that as well and the plasma that's sitting in the root section. So there's this, this beautiful thing happening with mother nature along with the plant itself and everything that's around it and all the other plants around it to, to really give us what this beautiful plant can, can deliver to us. I'm sun and complete and I, I really appreciate it. Good night, everybody. And I, I've learned a lot. I, uh, thank you very much. Have a good thanks, night. Thanks for joining us tonight, son. Great to have you with us. All right, so I wanna to go to a question we got from the YouTube crowd. Uh, so I got a message from Peter and it actually, we got a question from a good friend of mine, Blue Green Tank, my buddy up in Maine. Uh, this guy is the master of the avocado tech. Uh, he actually was on Peter's uh, show with, and I joined him as well. Um, he's, uh, he's a tremendous indoor uh, and uh, cultivator, and he's actually he's actually gone uh, pro as well. He's got a he's got a company going on up there as well. So uh, Blue's question is this, and I'm going to read his question, and hopefully uh, it makes sense, and uh, we'll let Nick and the other experts take it from there. Is there any preparations or conditions to preserve flavonoids and any other volatile compounds in simple tinctures that we can keep in mind? Cold infusions, sonic infusions, other methods? What, what a super question. Yeah, go for it, Dr. Mark. What do you got? Yeah, you, you, I... I I'll, I'll, I'll take a hack. Do you want me to? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So, yeah, I think for, for flavonoid preservation, I mean, again, remember that these things are phenols, and phenols act as antioxidants. And so antioxidants are the things that are in the food we eat that protect it from oxidative degradation. So the reason why certain foods go rancid is because they react with air to make, um, well, um, Nick was kind of like being general, he was talking about this, that they absorb energy. Uh, it makes a radical, right? And the radical reacts with oxygen, and that makes something called the hydroperoxide. And the hydroperoxide degrades from there into things like aldehydes and other nasty molecules. So if you've ever tasted like stale peanuts, that kind of flavor, that's because the linoleic acid and the other polyunsaturated acids that were in the peanut oil have oxidatively degraded. So I think that that's actually the benefit of these molecules. You want them to be in their, I guess, pro-oxidant form. You want them to be able to go into the body as an antioxidant and not um, not already be degraded. So I would just keep them in the dark and keep them cold. And if you can, try to keep them air-free because the uh, interaction with oxygen and air is ultimately going to lead to their degradation. That's def definitely slowed when it's cold and uh, moisture-free and uh, dark. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And like Dr. Mark was saying, you know, these are these are compounds that are supposed supposed to provide some level of oxidative protection, and so 
you know, in reality, the quality of your medicine and the, the therapeutic potential would actually increase with the presence of flavonoids because they would likely prevent the oxidation of the cannabinoids and the terpenes. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, all right. So we got another question oh. from the YouTube Ooh. set that I want to ask now. Uh, Jason, Mary, can I, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. If you want to chime I, in real quick, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to throw one thing in there. I can't say much on like the, the, um, second half of that question, but the first half I can say that is kind of interesting. Um, is it, uh, I guess if, if more people uh, focused on what terpenes they were really trying to keep, um, storage would be a lot different, and even their cure might be a lot different, dependent on um, whether it's a fixed or volatile, like oil. Um, like some things like myrcene is really, really expressed and gassed off, and and um, in an alcohol form. So say you are running a dispensary, you're not going to want your guys cracking the jar open 10 times a day comparatively to, um, like, uh, like say like a carophylline, like dominant strain, which is more of a fixed oil. It's not going to, um, you know, like, kind of express that way same thing with like something like linalol it loves to gas off because it's an alcohol um so um but on the flavonoid side from a lot of the research that i've read the best and most efficient way for storage and extraction um and this is from um i guess more kind of uh dated research but ernest Gunther has a really good uh, book about essential oils, um, and something that he talks about is is um, is um, uh, my bad, drawing a blank. Uh, sorry, it's, essential oils. Yep. <clears throat> um, he talks about uh, he talks about ethanol as the best way to store and extract flavonoids because um, it's the most um, most uh, most efficient. So that might be a little bit of help as well. Um, I, think you were talk I was going to say you were talking to that earlier, Dr. Mark. Yeah, you know, a tincture to a chemist, to a herbalist, is just basically the boiled-down ethanol extract. So there is totally some truth to what you said now. And the other thing is that, you know, again, we're, um, so when you extract the ethanol, you're a much more polar solvent. So you're going to, you're going to, so that I, I believe like the anthocyanins and the, um, um, this general class of compounds is more likely to be in the ethanol extracts. And if you think about it, the ethanol extracts are always darker, right? Ethanol-based crude, like if you're looking at temp. Is typically, you know, almost it, it's, it's black as night, right? I mean, it's really, really dark in color. It's amazing that you can get, you know, snow white CBD ice cream from this black <laughs> crew, right? I mean, it's crazy, actually, if you think about it. But, yeah, all the pigments that are in a lot of those, you know, dark cannabis extracts, uh, you know, like full-spectrum, Rick Simpson, those kinds of extracts, are probably 
again, probably degraded because I don't believe that they're going to be able to survive the heat that choose to recover the solvent. So maybe, like, again, like if you're looking to try to get these into an extract, especially like into the tincture, maybe what you want to do is you want to do a, a, a low temperature recovery on your alcohol extract. Now, I'll bet you that that extract is pretty rich so I mean you know one of, one of the things we should maybe eventually get to is the implications that these compounds can have in productivity it's one of the sort of missing pieces but again to kind of bring it back to tea you know again here's a way that uh, a plant has been processed for thousands of years in such a way that um, preserves the functional sort of qualities of some of the flavonoids that are produced by guiding them through a series of transformations so if you're going to do an extract, maybe try to do like a full spectrum extract like Dr. Mark was getting at. And um, I think Matt also kind of suggested to try to keep it more broad spectrum. The problem with flavonoids, generally speaking, is that they're susceptible to oxidation. And if they're just kind of existing in their own without any of their synergistic entourage effect type of compounds, they're going to get oxidized. They're going to get broken down. But if you have a full spectrum thing, you may have some some good chemistry happening between the ketones and the aldehydes and the organic you know, acids and the alcohols, which, by the way, the reaction of those two, um, Alex, to answer a question you asked earlier, esters are technically uh, the children, I guess you could say, between what happens when an alcohol meets an organic acid. You know, that kind of reaction gives rise to esters. <laughs> I used to date somebody named Esther, actually. Um. I feel like some, like some, some people, and of course, there's not like a credible research or anything. But I think some people can relate to what Nick is saying when they've seen maybe some like lower tier uh, flower that maybe you know a month after it's you know been cured starts to fade and kind of turn like like that blonde look and that's what I would believe is because like everything is kind of just oxidizing because it wasn't a complete you know profile or it might just be you know that strain specifically but um, if like people are curious what it looks like I feel like that is like how I would imagine that like process kind of happening at least on the plant itself yeah it's pretty complex too like with the the root exudates that we've been talking about the ones that are released from the roots like some of these flavonoids they act as like the on and off switch uh for certain species of fungus like for all the you know our, our muscular mycorrhizal fungi like the glomus genus in particular i think now some of the species are in the gigaspora genus but you know researchers have seen things like the enhanced spore germ germination the overall hyphal growth the ability of the fungi to form the relationship with the plant this is a function of the interaction that the flavonoids have with the internal chemistries of these microbes and of these fungi you know to the same extent that flavonoids have been shown to um, help promote the growth of certain select microbes they've also been shown to actually be pro-oxidants they have participated in the generation of reactive oxygen species but specifically against microbes that the plant doesn't want anything to do with so these are like double-edged swords they become very useful when we're looking at kind of getting the environment in the rhizosphere to be most conducive towards plant growth right these are where some of the structural and functional relationships come from but also to, to another extent too i mean these things are versatile in their ability to be used as antioxidants and even as uh, pro-oxidants, which would repress the growth of certain types of pathogenic 
fungi, let's just say. So, you know, a lot of very complex stuff to keep in mind. Not factors. <laughs> Do you know about nod factors, Nick, what nod factors are? Nod factors are signaling molecules that are produced by soil bacteria in response to flavonoid exudation by plants. So, I mean, yeah, this is like, it's all related, man. Like, Mother Nature's little chemistry box in the soil. It's so fucking cool. It's all related. And there's a whole zoo of fungi that basically are stimulated by molecules released by the roots. It is just crazy what's going on down there. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. one of the things we had talked about earlier. And I think we had looked at some of the isoflavonoids uh, and how they dissolve like iron phosphates, for example. So you have this kind of dual effect of making uh, you know, improving the nutrient acquisition abilities of the plant by producing a compound that could otherwise be characterized as maybe a microbial stimulant or a fungal biostimulant, uh, things like that. Like you said, this is almost like Pandora's box. It's not so much what we're looking at, it's how we're looking at it. If you look at it from this angle, for this, <laughs> yeah, this, absolutely. What is it? What's going on here, guys? Right? Like there's like different, different species talking to different, Thing. Yeah, I just—it's great. Yeah, that's awesome. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so um, we could we could keep going on this one. Let me just go ahead and, and cut over. We got uh, Mary Jane Nursery had a question on YouTube, so I want to make sure we get some of these questions in here. And Ali Muffin joined us, so I want to be—I want to make sure we say hi to Ali and give him a chance to talk. Uh, but we've uh, so Mary Jane Nursery uh, put in cannabis is classified as a photoremediator. Being so, does terroir have an effect on flavonoid expression? And I think we already talked a little bit about the fact that we, you know, definitely terroir has an effect on, uh, an effect on flavonoid expression. Uh, we see that in grapes, uh, with wine, uh, different, you know, different terroirs produce different flavors of the same grape, uh, which produce different types of wine, uh, different, uh, you know, all the different environmental factors affect plants and the flavors that they produce. Uh, if you get an early frost on a citrus crop, you're going to get a sweeter uh, fruit, and maybe that's because those colder temperatures helped promote better flavonoid development in those oranges, so I think that's an interesting uh, crossover there. Um, but yeah, no, definitely, I, I, I personally think that uh, terroir definitely would have an effect over that. Uh, Nick? I strongly agree with that, and I think a good hook back into this conversation is tea. Um, there are types of tea called rock tea or yanchats, wuyi oolong, W-U-Y-I, oolong teas. Um, look into them because this region is kind of known for having a very distinct mineral profile in the soil, and there are literally grow straight out of rocks with no soil, but they take a very, very long time to grow, very long time, 20 years to reach the same height as a bush, which grows in soil can achieve in, let's say, two to three years. And also, like you're hinting at, too, the flavonoid structure and the composition overall changes. I mean, one of the good ways to think about uh, flavonoids and secondary metabolites at large is that they're produced in response to an environment. And that environment is everything that the plant can possibly perceive from the light all the way down to the tiniest and most nuanced of chemistries happening in the soil. So if there's a particular mineral profile, for example, if the soil is very rich in iron, you bet that's going to have an effect on the overall type of tea. And overall, you know, with tea processing, 
they're kind of at a spot now where the cultivars are grown in particular regions that have these types of mineral profiles that can be brought out through a particular processing technique. So it's almost like if you had a, you know, a cultivar that you like to grow specifically because it washed really good hash versus extracted really good live resin. These are some of the nuanced differences that we're talking about here with processing techniques and how they ultimately affect, um, you know, the, the expression of the, or the profile of substances that are biologically active. So, yeah, I mean, for, again, with the tea example, there's, Plenty of examples of cultivars and regions where um, the impact of the, the, that particular microclimate, that terroir, has a, has a, like a defining characteristic or a defining impact on the overall product. You know, so yeah. Ooh, awesome, awesome, good stuff. So thank you, Mary Jane Nursery, for chiming in, and thank you, Blue a Green Tank, and thank you, Peter, for passing those questions over from YouTube for me. Appreciate that. Ollie Muffins, what's going on, my friend? Uh, you know, flavonoids are big in muffins, you know. I mean, you know, muffins are tasty. Uh, they have lots of flavonoids in them, especially a good blueberry muffin uh, that's going to be high, as we talked about earlier. Those, uh, those berries are high in flavonoids. So what's going on tonight, Mr. Ali Muffins? Well, thank you. It's not up tonight. I'm, I'm quiet, um, but uh, it's such a great conversation. Obviously, I, I just prefer to listen. And uh, Dr. Mark, um, it's nice to have you up here. Um, I wanted to take us to actually um, a similar place that Nick is describing with the tea and go old school a little bit. Um, with respect to the gentleman who asked about preservation of fl flavonoids, um, I want to ask the group, what role do the ancient arts play in that preservation? It seems to me like either rosin, which is kind of the new uh, kid on the block, or our greatest friend hashish would be the, the best methods of preservation, um, certainly the best methods of transportation of uh, trichomes is hashish. Um, I want to know your guys' thoughts, whether anyone has looked into that aspect of it and what we can learn from the plant, uh, because the plant is probably our best example of how to preserve flavonoids. Yeah, no, I think that's a tremendous, tremendous uh, example. I think, you know, a temple ball, for example, uh, which is a tremendous, you know, is, is and, and a hashish ball itself, uh, it is going to, you know, so it's a preparation that is done, uh, if we're going old school, right, it's a preparation that's done with very little or low heat, uh, so you're not affecting the terp the uh, flavonoids with that heat. Uh, you're keeping them uh, from being exposed to oxygen. And so I know Nick and, and Dr. Mark both mentioned, you know, keeping them away from uh, oxidation. So the way that hash is made, those the density of that material um, on the inside, especially those flavonoids are totally uh, safe and protected. Uh, they have that layer of the oils uh, that is coming naturally from the plant around the outside. And uh, when you break open some hashish, uh, some well-preserved hashish, you, I mean, it will stink up the room. You're going to get those, uh, you're going to get those terpenes and uh, those flavonoids are definitely going to come out. That aroma is going to rise, and then you're going to taste that. Um, and I would also say that that processing is done something to change those flavonoids.
cannabinoids because there is a hashish flavor, if you will, um, that is different than those cannabinoids were in that plant material. When you uh, bring the plant through that process, and again, similar to the way that Nick was expressing those preparations of tea to get it to that type of a state, these preparations are um, going to probably um, you know, work in the favor of maintaining those flavonoids. So uh, yeah, no, that's an awesome one to bring up, Ali. Uh, thank you so much. Nick, thank you. And I'm sitting Nick here with Dr. a little... Mark, oh, you, go yeah. ahead, doctor. I was just saying, Nick or Dr. Mark, did you want to add on that? Yeah, I was just going to uh, reference the paper that Nick was referring to earlier, where the Italian group had identified hashishin as a uh, degraded form of mercine. You know, if you read the experimental on that paper, what they what they found is that the hashishin was rich on the outside skin of the hash. So on the inside, they didn't see this. So again, that lends credence again to what Nick was talking about To It's where light is attacking the outside of the hash and that the skin is forming that's enriched with this new degraded terpene called hashishin. So I thought that that was interesting because again, that was in uh, kind of like I think if you read that paper too, um, there were some samples that were confiscated that was the money. Oh, we may have lost you there, Dr. Mark. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you guys lose me? Okay. Hello? Yeah, I don't know if you have like a dangling microphone that's falling behind your collar or something, um, but you, you no, I, the don't. Fade out. I just got a shitty iPhone, that's all. <laughs> one, one thing I'd I'd like to say on the hashish, I like, and I'm I'm not like an expert, and I wasn't like you know full in the pits, but interestingly, um, I was in the military, and when I was in Afghanistan, uh, I got to experience a little bit of like a closer touch of the culture, and <clears throat> I, I like. Their cultivation uh, is definitely like a little bit more drastic than ours, if you will. Like, I mean, I saw them like like snow, like pushing like plants over, and they're like walking up, like ah, it's not ready yet. It's like so, like they're they're really pushing these plants like to a level I think most people in in the United States uh, are like nervous to, if you will, or- Well, they're genetically but, adapted to those environments too. Oh, totally, totally, 100%, I'll give you that too. Um, but I think that's like something that's pretty um, unique is, I mean, they're, they're really putting this plant to the end of its entire life cycle through some pretty, pretty intense, you know, kind of elements. So the amount of, uh, uh, stress it's getting and like um, like I think it was Ollie that said that um, hashishin is just degraded myrcene and like myrcene is essentially in some sense the stress you know like terpene so it all kind of like correlates if 
that makes sense. Well, I, and I wanted to give you guys a cool example of that in my PTR. You'll see that the outer skin, this is a very old piece of hash. This is dry and old, but it's still, when I, if I crack it open too now, there'll be a third color that's very golden light. And you can literally see the layer of protection where a portion of it has degraded and turning into a slightly different compound. And then there's the lighter portion on the inside. Uh, this is a very nice piece of hash I have, and I'll share some with you guys from here. Yeah, so the flavonoids are basically protecting the inner layers of that hash from oxidative degradation. And that's the entourage effect that the plants produce these compounds because right. they are sort of you know designed or chemically engineered in such a way that they can transform and continue to uh improve over time i mean think about it this way terpenes are produced and emitted from plants and that's not not an accidental thing you know it's been shown that alpha pinene and beta pinene can be emitted above the canopies as a way to uh, afford an extracellular sunscreen so that when the sunlight filters through these terpenes it would soak up some of the frequencies of light that might induce stress for the plants. And so the other way to think about it too is that these terpenes and really the, the flavonoids and other secondary metabolites, these are compounds that in some cases guide interactions across entire kingdoms of species. And so you have to look at it with respect to what is the plant utilizing these compounds for for its own internal chemistries. And here we've seen the entourage effect um, finally at large with that beautiful piece of hash. Ali, thank you for sharing that. Um, but also keep in mind, too, that on the flip side, uh, these compounds, again, they, they sort of guide interactions across entire kingdoms of species. You know, they attract pollinators, they get microbes and fungus involved in the mix, and the plants exist in the middle, and humans also get attracted to it. So this idea that it sort of sits in isolation away from other life forms, it d doesn't really, like, line up when you start to look at large and say, yeah, the flavonoids are everywhere, and they literally do everything that we can think of being done, you know? So yeah, there's that. All right, so we are at the 11 o'clock hour here on the East Coast. This is the two hour mark. Um, I do want to be uh, cognizant of people's times. It is definitely getting, uh, we've had a tremendous conversation tonight. Um, I'm happy to continue the conversation a little longer, uh, but we are definitely at the two hour mark and um, I want to, I want to uh, let folks go if they feel like they need to get out of here, you know, Nick and, and Dr. Mark, uh, feel free to, uh, you know, cut out if you like. Um, and and uh, if not, you know, stick around. We'll go ahead and ask, see if we have a few more questions. And if not, we'll shut down the room in just a little bit uh, and do uh, we'll do final thoughts and then uh, bring down the room. So if there's any other questions, I, I was trying to bring up uh, Herm Hamant. Uh, he had his uh, he had his uh, hand up, but uh, he doesn't having a little trouble getting him up here. Wait, Peter, did we have any more questions on YouTube? Quickly, uh, I'll tell Hamad, if you refresh your page, Hamad, and if it really doesn't work, you can go out and back in, and uh, usually that solves the problem. Sorry for the interruption, Jason, back to you. Oh, no, I appreciate that, Ali. Yeah, I was, I was also just trying to get him up on stage. I just got uh, 
MoneyGram up on stage. Hey, hey, hey. Um, I got a question. It's a great room you guys got going here. A lot of information, uh, a lot of tangents. But um, in regards to stress, can we hear a little bit of color on uh, audio stress? Got anything on that? Um, I don't know if that really relates to the topic tonight, uh, as far as flavonoids go. Um, but audio stress, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know about audio stress. I know um, there's definitely been some science around audio benefiting uh, the plants, and I, I was in a conversation the other evening where we were talking about how uh, the plants actually uh, were at least signaling, and there was a scientist who hooked it up to. Uh, a microphone and the the plants would be clicking when the scientists would come in the room but if other people came in the room it would stop clicking um, so the plants were actually talking and, and communicating and uh, happily humming uh, but when uh, intruders came into the area they were a little bit more concerned and uh, maybe keeping an eye on what was going on but I don't know about stress that's what I'm thinking I'm thinking because yeah. The plant is so much like us, and we're just like it. And so, I mean, if I'm hearing a certain sound at a certain frequency, I'm going to do certain things to protect or to open up myself to communicate with those things. I would think that the plant would have a similar reaction where certain flavonoids or terpenes would be released based on uh, the presence of. And that maybe that's maybe it just hasn't been researched enough. Same plant, same. You know what I mean? One hears it down, the other one doesn't. One thing I will say, I mean, I've seen minor, minor, like, re, like you know, research about, you know, like music on, music off with plants. I don't think specifically, like, frequency-wise, it's been tested, like, which hurts the plants are, you know, exactly getting. But there are, like, you know, the plant wave is another one similar to what... Um, what Jason was like talking about. I think that one actually, like there was a tester model that came out for a while. And then like the real one comes out in like <clears throat> November, I think. And you like clip it to the plant and you can like hear essentially the frequency that it's like putting out, if you will. But I think this is like a deep, deep rabbit hole, if you will, because, um, like when you start talking about frequencies, especially where we are with like science, especially quantum science and everything, I mean, we're realizing that essentially everything is just a weird conglomeration of you know, like energy and frequencies. So I think, yes, of course, it affects the plant, but we just don't have the research or even really the know-how right now to even measure that, I think. I'd say that's almost a mole hole next to the rabbit hole. Yeah. Kind of another hole in a similar area, but probably not directly connected. Nick, like any, anything from you point. on that? <laughs> well, it's, I mean... It gets it gets really deep with different sciences across the board. I think like and not enough research. Yeah, and I think part of it too is what it comes down to is that plants over time have evolved the ability to be very fine tuned in their responses towards things like biotic stresses because they constantly have insects that are coming in and doing some serious serious damage. What they've developed less sophistication around is processing and perceiving. Um, individual frequency, you know, frequencies of sound. I'm not saying that doesn't happen, so please don't make it, you know, please don't mistake it for that. Um, plants do respond to, you know, particular hertz wave frequencies, but I think that in the overall scope of what's possible to 
create in terms of a molecular response, um, you know, you you would be looking at different domains of interactions altogether. You know, flavonoids would be uh, produced as the result of maybe an insect biting down on the leaf surface, and that saliva from the insect is detected by a particular protein, you know, within the cell walls that's capable of sensing and identifying like what exactly is attacking it. And so these are the types of sophisticated machinery that I think plants have developed, and that's what allowed them to have like a remarkably wide number of metabolites that can be produced in response to a specific type of stress. So I think if you were to see any differences as a result of experimentation with simple sound frequencies, you know, unless it came to like actually, you know, pushing the plants around physically with, you know, bass frequencies and things like that, uh, the differences in overall secondary metabolite expression would probably not be vast enough to like open up a new sort of possible terp profile, let's say, or something like that. Because, you know, again, it's like a structure function thing. The, the biosynthesis of these compounds that we're looking at, they're very, very tightly regulated. They're extremely tightly regulated by plants. They rely on all kinds of extremely intricate and sensitive networks, cellular redox networks. There's hormonal pathways that get factored in. But, you know, this stuff is very tightly regulated by plants, and it's not ever produced um, sort of, you know, without a very specific stimuli coming in to drive that response in the plant, if that kind of makes sense. All right, we got Chase with us. Chase, what's going on? Do you have a question or a comment to add tonight? Yes, uh, I was wondering um, thoughts on how long before we have standardization across the board and not uh, up to each individual state on testing requirements. I know that when it comes to overall COAs that uh, flavonoids are something that's not even quantified, the, you know, outside yep. of cannabinoids and terps, that's it. So uh, yep. I was wondering um, what everyone's thoughts are mm -hmm. in regards to standardization of COAs and being able to quantify or start testing for flavonoids, uh, especially when it comes to breeding and chasing certain chemovars of, of lines. Yep. So uh, I we we did touch on this briefly earlier. I think you know uh, you're not going to get a broader standard until there's a federal legalization. First of all, right? That's just not going to happen. Uh, each state has its own laws, its own rules, and of course they're going to make up their own ways to test stuff. Um, so that's currently the state the the problem that we're experiencing. And uh, unfortunately, uh, right now it's being uh, left to the commercial sector uh, to decide what does get tested and what doesn't get tested. So uh, hopefully at some point in time after federal legalization, there'll be some addition on that. Um, but yeah, nobody is doing a flavonoid test. And I think there's definitely some, uh, there would there'd be some, you know, you have to figure out what are those standards? What are those markers? What are those things that we're doing a comparison of uh, before you could um, start testing for them? And um, then, you know, I think there you would have to do that in a separate testing process um, from the way that you currently do the testing of those other things, right? The testing for cannabinoids 
is a, um, a different type of a test than the testing for terpenes. Um, and so uh, similarly, I would imagine it's a different type of testing for flavonoids, uh, again, because they're a different chemical compound than the others. And so it would require a different set of material for the test, as well as a different technique for doing that actual testing. One thing to add in like a pie in the sky, I'm not too, uh, like, I have great hope for the future when federal legalization hits in one sense, because I believe once the, um, I'll get some giggles here, but the perfume you know, industry, um, especially like a lot of the professionals from like Europe, France specifically, can actually like uh, get their hands on or like help and like get their hands into the scene. I think that's going to be one of the most unique kind of like industry bonds that will happen and will help us um, speed up a ton, even in like selection process of plants, because the knowledge that a lot of these guys have is incredible. They know exactly what, you know, like essential oils to mix to get this effect or this effect or that effect. And, and they'll be able to, I think, help bridge a lot of gaps that we might be missing. And even in testing, because they rely on very, very like specific testing standards, especially in um, France. I, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I, I learned a couple of days ago that um, the the big barrier actually to import and export is this standardization of, of uh, testing and acceptance of, of quality um, and and the Europeans are the toughest about it to the extent that many companies are finding it easier to create facilities there um, rather than uh, uh, try to you know pass testing here and then export it over so um, that's a, and and that's a very interesting point you you bring up Matt um, I often think of whether the final um, Frontier for uh, the uh, uh, perfume companies will be terpenes rather than, uh, and I, w I would be fascinated to discover, maybe we could do this another day about terpenes between plants and um, what we extract from animals for uh, perfume. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's either, I can't remember if it's red or, red or meth, right? It's, uh, oh, that's my cologne, can't buy for men. Love it, love it. Um, yeah. All right. So uh, hopefully that answered your question, Chase. Yeah, I, I was just <laughs> just talking to talk. Yeah, yeah. No worries. No worries at all. Um, yeah, I mean, Dr. Mark or Nick, did you want to talk a little bit about what, you know, maybe what it would take to do that type of testing? or creating some type of well, uh, standard yeah, there? Yeah, I mean, for, first of all, I mean, we were talking about it before, like, if you're testing plant material, so yeah, so let's back up to plant material. So if you're testing plant material and it's like 22, 23% total cannabinoids and your terpenes are like, what, like, I don't know, one or 2%, yeah, so there's a whole lot left that you can try to figure out everything that's in there. You know, good luck. Again, it's a puzzle that you'd probably need LC mass spec to figure out. Mass spec, 
because it's you need the sensitivity of something like the mass spectrometer and you can compare the mass spectrum to the library uh, to make sure that you're getting a hit for that particular compound and I think with I'm not absolutely sure but I'm, I'm thinking with some of these compounds they actually don't they fragment in the mass spectrometer so what you're actually measuring is actually a fragment of the molecule not the molecule itself but yeah they'd have to develop analytical testing for that and they're having a difficult enough time just doing terpenes and cannabinoids let alone having to do uh, you know pesticides and you know residual solvents and, and microbiological contamination I mean there's a lot that goes into, you know, developing a full COA these days. And, uh, yeah, flavonoids just don't rise to the level of importance. Now, maybe for marketability, and there's a certain aspect about nutrition uh, that can be useful to say that this strain has X amount of total you know, flavonoid content, and that would be useful again. Yeah, probably at the uh, at the plant material, but in distillates or in extracts, I don't think you're going to find them very rich in flavonoids. Maybe trace amounts, and probably their degraded um, uh, former cells. All right, so um, A, you just sent me a whole uh, sentence there, man. I'm going to let you chime in. I don't want to sit here and read your notes for you. Why don't you go ahead and uh, I don't need to be middleman for you, man. Why don't you go ahead and <laughs> yeah, chime I, I, in here, brother? I was about to go, man, because I, I wasn't wanting to interrupt anybody. But what I just sent you um, is pretty interesting, man. It says... Uh, uh, flavonoids are uh, hydroxylated phenolic substances and are known to uh, synthesize, known to be synthesized by plants in response to my microbial infection. That's very interesting to me, and it speaks volume, just that one. And then as it goes further down, I won't read that middle part, but it said recent interest in these substances has been stimulated by the potential health benefits arising from the antioxidant activities of these uh, phenolic compounds. Functional hydroxyl groups of flavonoids meditate their antioxidant effects by scavenging free radicals and or by chelating, chelating uh, I don't know how to pronounce that, chelating metal ions. Chelating. Which is, say it again? Chelating, chelating, chelating metal ions. Yeah, so that yeah. that part right there, the chelating uh, metal ions, that's super important. If anyone I know, if anyone knows what chelating means, that's super important. So, yeah, I just thought that was very interesting. I wanted to share that with everyone. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think uh, Nick talked to that uh, earlier where um, it has an impact on uh, the uh, uptake of uh, metals uh, and uh, things into the plant structure. Just to throw it out there, um, just for a recap for everybody, if you uh, Google uh, flavonoids in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, um, you can pretty much get a condensed down version of our discussion this evening on that. All righty. So um, do we have any additional uh, comments before we go ahead and wrap up? 
Just a big thank you from me and everyone else uh, that, that has had the pleasure of listening to you guys. I know everyone in the audience, uh, I follow everyone in cannabis. So I started following a bunch of you guys at the bottom. Welcome to Clubhouse. I see Hoda brought a bunch of newbies to Clubhouse. And uh, I just want to say thank you to you, Nick, and Jason, uh, you, Nick, and Peter for uh, moderating for us. And Dr. Mark and Mark, what a great uh, addition you two were tonight. Uh, very nice getting to know everyone. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having this room. This was a great room. I'll just leave with this little uh, conjecture. You know, I, I think, you know, the color of, of distillate, we've all seen like color, uh, that golden orange kind of ruby orange color. I think that color in distillate is due to flavonoids. And the reason why is because it is pH sensitive, depending on what the pH is. I mean, you can see that that compound basically change color. But the other thing is that I think in some distillates that uh, are cleaned up, you can basically remove that color. And I think that that's the flavonoids. I think there's degraded flavonoids in there that are leading to the colors of, yeah, of no, absolutely. that we all know and love. Absolutely. I, I completely agree there. Uh, that was actually one of the things I said at the beginning of the conversation was that that's where the yellow uh, is coming from in the plant materials and lemons and oranges and things like that. So, Well, THC uh, yeah, is no. yellow, though, as it turns out. So pure THC is you got, has a slight, slight yellow color. But it's not, and and the interesting thing is, is if you do purify THC, what you'll notice is that as soon as you expose it to air, it turns pink. It turns like ruby red color, and it's really interesting because I think what it does is it forms a little bit of the, of the hydroquinone, and it just it just does that. You can't kind of keep that from happening. So yeah. Interesting. But hey, great room. Love the chemistry discussion. Love the enthusiasm for the plant. And uh, let me know if you guys have any chemistry questions. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for participating tonight. I really appreciate it. Uh, you you. It was fun to meet you all, man. Yeah, Thank no, you. it was wonderful. Uh, Nick, why don't you go ahead and give us your final thoughts, sir? Uh, you know, it's the same thought that I started off with, which is, you know, to understand these substances and get them in your body. Find some high-quality loose-leaf tea. It doesn't have to be super expensive. Just pay attention to how it was made, and you'll start to understand that these compounds are biologically active. They do have this entourage effect with terpenes and cannabinoids. And as you all can, you know, continue to explore plant-based medicines with cannabis and with other plants, keep in mind there's a strong entourage effect and a synergistic effect that happens when you start, you know, pulling together other classes of compounds that are related to cannabinoids, related to terpenes. You know, turmeric root, for instance, has curcuminoids. Well, curcuminoids are similar to cannabinoids, and curcuminoids have been also shown to have very powerful anti-inflammatory effects too. So, you know, start looking at the world around you with a different lens, and that lens is one that has a new class of compounds attached to it as far as the entourage effect goes. We all know about terpenes and cannabinoids and hopefully after tonight's discussion everyone knows a little bit more about flavonoids yeah absolutely fantastic matthew uh final thoughts before uh we before i wrap up sir thank you for bringing me on this was actually my first live so in the beginning i was like super nervous now i'm kind of like oh man we're going because you know i'm 
I'm all like calm and breathing now. That's right. But yeah, um, conversations <laughs> continue around here all the time. There's plenty of rooms to follow, and uh, definitely check out Ali Muffins down below. Uh, oh, totally, he is in the center of the chaos and conversation all the time. So if you follow Ali around, you'll pretty much fo- find your crowd and your crew. So uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks for joining That's awesome. us tonight. Yeah, totally. This like one thing I want to like impress on people is uh as much as you can without you know causing deficiencies dodge nitrogen it's proven across the board in multiple different crops and i believe there is a little bit of a like a a minor research going right now or it was released this year um showing that that nitrogen uh, severely decreases terpenes and flavanols, no matter the plant, really. So try and dodge it as much as possible. And I, you know, I think most of us try to uh, avoid nitrogen uh, in the flower cycle, especially towards the end of the flower cycle anyway. So that's just one more reason to me uh, to make sure that there isn't a lot of nitrogen in there and then maybe not throw in any worm castings in those last two weeks uh, during the advanced ripening phase, you know. Um, so, so Patrick, I see you just jumped up, so I'll give you a couple, uh, I'll give you a little bit here to go ahead and chime in, but, uh, we are wrapping up the conversation tonight. Oh, no worries. I was just going to say paradoxically, um, it probably preserves the terpenes best as far as we know, correct? I'm sorry, say that again? When Nitrogen? No, like, I... Like feeling the tubes that we're storing our flavanols and, and terpene profiles in when uh, I've heard of people adding nitrogen that has the greatest uh, preservation of terpenes. Is this correct? So Go ahead. I would say anecdotally, any flower I've had that has been stored in nitrogen and uh, there's only been two companies I've tried and I don't, really want to blast one of them but like i definitely i was never kind of impressed with with it but that's just my personal like opinion and i I think it works great in the food industry and and a lot of other you know like other like industries but when you're dealing with volatile um volatile you know oils and it's just not a good mix but I mean, large scale. Yeah, I mean, it may be certain aspects of the preservation are better for certain aspects of the Holy Trinity than others, right? Uh, Maybe it's taking away from some of the terpenes um, or some of the flavonoids in that process, or, you know, maybe the nitrogen's counteractive to the flavonoids, uh, but the cannabinoids and the terpenes are still being really well preserved. Uh, And since that's the thing that most people are testing, uh, maybe that's why uh, the nitrogen was the choice for those types of uh, preservation. But yeah, no, it's definitely an interesting point. I know I've seen uh, some of the stuff that folks were doing with using uh, using those uh, types of nitrogen gas uh, products for that preservation. So that's a really interesting point, Patrick. Thank you for bringing you that up. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Alex, any final thoughts for us tonight? 
Yeah, just a lot more to learn myself, you know, uh, the flavonoids and terpenoids and really interesting. I know I like to eat cannabis and juice it myself. Um, I consider myself pretty healthy, so just, you know, seems like I got more reading to do about flavonoids and uh, what they're about in cannabis. I know you guys were talking about the anathionins. Um, I'm curious with different flavors and different colors, you know, you guys were talking about and uh, what those may have to do with the chakras to get a little esoteric and stuff. But yeah, just yeah. that's where my thoughts were. So, yeah, no, yeah. I think there's an interesting tie between, um, you know, there's this um, anecdotal story that the strawberry field strain came from a plant that was grown in a field of strawberries, and the strawberries kind of imparted their strawberriness into that plant. And um, I think it's really interesting because strawberries have flavonoids and they have that anthocyanins. Um, in it as well. Strawberries are high, uh, have a high amount of those uh, as the flavonoid of choice, actually, for strawberries. And um, they seem to have imparted that specific uh, flavor, uh, flavonoid, over to um, to that plant. Um, suppose, you know, and again, that's an anecdotal story. We don't have any proof, but that's supposedly where that strain comes from. So really, really interesting stuff. Uh, so, um, yeah, no, so let's go ahead and uh, get ready to close up. So thank you all so much for joining uh, Peter and I uh, at this first episode of Hota Herbs Grow and Tell uh, online live with the Future Cannabis Project. Uh, this entire session was uh, simulcast on YouTube. So if you missed it or want to listen in again because you didn't get your notes down because uh, there was just so much thick information we went through tonight uh, on all sorts of different areas and topics uh, that we really, really went way deep down several tunnels in the rabbit hole, I believe, tonight. So uh, really, really fantastic time. So I want to thank, uh, you know, Nick from Rooted, The Rooted Leaf and uh, everybody else who participated in the conversation tonight and absolutely everybody who sit and sat here and listened to us drone on for this last two and a half hours. I can't believe how uh, fast that time went by. Uh, so I greatly appreciate the platform. Uh, you know, so really, really thank you so much, Peter, for uh, reaching out to me and, and for helping me get going again. I can't thank you enough for uh, for including me in the Future Cannabis Project uh, group uh, and uh, have uh, allowing me to participate on your platform. So thank you, sir. Well, and thank you for uh, holding it down and making it happen and leading a great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. One, the first of many to come. So yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So I, I think in a way we teased out uh, potentially next week's topic, but uh, I'll, I'll save that for a future announcement. But we we did talk about some things that if if we can make it happen could could be talked about next week. 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And we have uh, a, a similarly uh, deep group already uh, in the works that we're kind of preparing to have that conversation. So, yeah, no, I'm super excited uh, to, to get that, uh, to, to, to have that conversation or something else, right? Uh, we're, that's we, right. We, <laughs> we're, we're, could go we're, in any direction. That's the yeah, idea. yeah, no, absolutely. But now what I loved was while, while you were holding it down, I, uh, I fed the kids uh so we ate an entire dinner while you guys were all talking awesome awesome so so we so we planned appropriately uh which is also a good thing i uh you know i do uh, professional project management program management for a large corporation and so i do believe in planning appropriately so that's always uh that's always a good thing uh so thank you again everybody have a fantastic evening and uh look for more uh, if you have not already please click on the little green house at the top and join the future Cannabis Project Club and make sure to follow myself and any of the speakers that you uh, listen to tonight so that you can get updates uh, the next time we're talking. Hit the little bells and uh, stars and all those wonderful things on all these uh, groups so that you get notifications uh, the next time that we're kicking it out. Uh, Peter holds a lot of different rooms uh, as well. It's not just me. He's got some other folks with some other rooms going on here as well, so great stuff. Um, and uh, thank you all for such a fantastic conversation tonight and have a wonderful evening. Thanks everyone. And with that, uh, I will close the room and then I will walk over to my computer and sign out of YouTube. Thank you for listening to a Future Cannabis Project podcast. For more information about the Future Cannabis Project, visit futurecannabisproject.org or follow us on YouTube at YouTube slash future cannabis project. You can also check out the general